Well, if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. And if you flip another page, you'll notice there's no more chapters. So we're almost done uh, with 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 uh, today as we continue our series called Exiles. We are looking at this letter uh, that Peter wrote to these Christians in what was called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he was writing to Christians scattered around uh, that region, encouraging them as God's people living in a foreign land, as God's people exiles on this earth, that their true citizenship is in heaven. That's where we really belong. And so Peter is saying to these Christians living in a non-Christian world how important it will be for them to persevere, for them to hear God's word and his truth and live by it. That's what this letter is all about, and that's what exiles our sermon series is all about. So today we're looking at verses 1 through 5, and before we dig into that, I want to pray and ask the Lord to bless his word as we receive it. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we're so thankful that you are our chief shepherd. Lord, you are the good shepherd, and we follow you. We want to follow your voice today. We want to know your voice. We want to hear it, and we want to receive it and follow it. So Lord, would you speak to us now through your word? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when you think about the phenomenon known as the Christian movement, it started in Jerusalem when Jesus uh, died and rose from the grave. And, and then what started to happen? The, the people started believing, right? So the Jews and, and then Gentiles, the non-Jews, they all started, uh, people started hearing this message and, and this gospel message of what Christ had done and who he actually is, it starts spreading throughout the Middle East and even up into where we would call modern-day Turkey today and to those recipients of this letter that Peter wrote. So people, Christians, are beginning to be scattered farther and farther around that Mediterranean world and up into Europe and in parts of Asia by this time. And so you have Christians all over. And so it's very important now for Peter, as one of the apostles, to write to them and encourage them as they are beginning to be scattered abroad. But we, God's people, exiles, though we are scattered all over the world to this present day, we're not unorganized and we're not disjointed. It's not every man for himself. That's not the Christian life. That's not how God designed it. So God designed a plan for Christians to be together. Collectively, all of God's people around the world are known as the church, and so that's the universal church. But God's plan all along has been for this church, His people, these exiles, us, to be localized, right? So He wants congregations to form. He wants us to be localized and organized. Our God is not a God of disorder. He is a God of order. You could look at the creation account. You could look at his characteristics throughout all of Scripture and see that our God is a God of order. And so he wants his people to be localized and organized in local congregations in different geographical areas all around the world so that we can be salt and light to an unbelieving world. So that his message and this good news and this phenomenon known as the Christian movement the gospel, Jesus, the creator of all things, that his message of hope and his life, death, and resurrection 
will continue to spread to people who've never heard or to people who have misheard or people who don't understand. And so we, the church, the local church, it's our mission in this local context in Jacksonville, Florida, specifically right off of Kernan Boulevard, hence our name, to be that salt and that light in this area, in this space that God has given us and placed us. But going back to the first century, with, with so much pressure on these Christians in Asia Minor living in a non-Christian environment, a very secular society that did not accept the teachings of Jesus, think how much those Christians in the first century needed good leaders. They needed good leaders to help guide and help navigate them through those difficult waters. So, after addressing, as we know, and throughout this letter, we've, we've hit some pretty hot topics, haven't we? Peter's addressing all kinds of really important things for Christians to think about. And so, after addressing so many different topics and people within the church, before he closes out this letter, Peter wants to say something to the leaders of the church. He wants to say something to the pastors. So based on this text today, there's four questions that I want us to ask concerning the role of a pastor. The why, the who, the what, and the how. Now, if you're a guest with us today, I want you to know uh, that I did not randomly choose to preach about my own job. <laughs> um, I'm preaching through the book of First Peter, and so this just happens to be uh, where we are, and so I happen to have to preach about it, right? Because we're preaching all of God's Word, uh, and we're not leaving anything out. But also, man, you guys, bear with me today. Like, it's incredibly difficult to prepare a sermon about your own job. So just please, <laughs> please show me a lot of grace today, all right? So first question, why do we need pastors? Now, I want you guys to be careful which word you accentuate when you ask that question, okay? It's not... Yeah, why do we need pastors, right? Okay, don't, that's not the right way to say it, all right? Uh, why do we need pastors, right? So I would actually love to hear your answers, by the way, to this question. So hold those and you can tell me later. But let's see what Peter says first, all right? So here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, the first part of verse 1. He says this, So I exhort, that means to urge or encourage, right? I urge, I encourage the elders among you. Now let's stop right there. All right, so first off, throughout the New Testament, you will find three different words that all describe the same thing. Three different words that describe the same office in the church, and that's the office of elder, pastor, overseer. So all three of those words, when you see them in the New Testament, elder, pastor, or overseer, they all are referring to the same position or the same office in the church. Of course, in our modern-day language, uh, most of us, especially in the Baptist world and the Protestant world, uh, we refer to that term as a pastor. Okay, so that's, that's who we're talking about here. When you see the word elder, it means pastor. So it's not referring to an elderly person, right? It's referring to the position in the church. So let's continue on. Peter says, Verse 1, so I exhort the elders or the pastors among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. All right, so let's stop there. So Peter, 
Peter tells these pastors, these elders, to shepherd the flock of God. Now, that's an interesting uh, analogy for us, and that's one at first glance that makes me feel a little uncomfortable because I have no experience raising sheep on a farm, okay? Uh, Zero. Like, the closest thing I will ever get will be a petting zoo. And even then, I'm like, where's the hand sanitizer, right? It's just not my thing, okay? (laughs) But what does being a shepherd have to do with being a pastor? Well, notice down in verse 4, Peter references someone as a chief shepherd. Do you see that? Who's the chief shepherd? Well, he's talking about Jesus. And he's already referred to Christ in chapter 2, verse 25, as being our shepherd and overseer. There's that word overseer, right? Pastor, elder, overseer. Our scripture reading during worship today that Will read for us was from John chapter 10, where Jesus referred to himself as what? The good shepherd. You see, the scriptures are full of references to Jesus being our shepherd. And it's full of references to us being his sheep. Now, that's not exactly flattering, because if you are familiar with sheep, uh, they're not exactly the brightest, you know what I mean? Uh, They need shepherding constantly, and so that's what God refers to all of his people as, and he is our ultimate shepherd. And so Psalm 100 verse 3 tells us this, know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us, and we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4, many of you know this by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Listen to the things that a shepherd does. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd's staff comforting his sheep, even when he has to wrap it around their necks and draw them back into the flock. He is ultimately comforting them by protecting them from danger. So like a good shepherd does with his sheep, Jesus leads us. He is our shepherd. He leads us through this life. He leads us through His his Word in truth and trains us over time to be obedient to it. Jesus said that His people, His sheep, they know His voice. You see, over time in the Christian life, what is God doing in your life? He's training your attentiveness. He's training your heart, your spiritual ears, so to speak to know His voice, to be able to distinguish truth, His voice, in a world of so many voices, in a world of so much, so much information claiming to have ultimate truth or, or questioning the, the idea of absolute truth, there is a shepherd who is our creator, who is our God, who is our Savior, who is training His people to hear His voice amongst all the other voices in this world, and to follow. He leads us to experience true peace and joy as we find our rest in Him. 
So what, what does this have to do with being a pastor? Well, what we need to know first and foremost is that Jesus, he is the chief shepherd. He is our ultimate shepherd. And listen to Mark 6, 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, Jesus, when ministering on this earth, he realized that people need a shepherd. People need someone to lead them, to feed them, his word, to care for them, to protect them. And ultimately, that is Christ. So now think in modern day terms in the local church. It's, it's not everybody for themselves. We're not scattered. We're gathered we're organized, we're localized, we are a flock of sheep here at Kernan. We are the family of God. Like I said during Rob's baptism today, Rob is joining this family. He's becoming one of us. And Christ is our true and ultimate leader. He is our leader. He is the head of this church. He is the shepherd. But you see, in this temporary world, in this temporary world, until Christ returns, which we believe fully he will, but we don't know when that'll be, so until Christ returns to gather his flock, right? To gather his sheep and take us home to our true home, as we've been talking about in the series called Exiles, right? We're exiles on this earth because this isn't our true residency. Our true residency is in heaven with Christ, our true shepherd. So when he returns, he will gather his sheep and he will take us home, and he will lead us for all eternity as our true and good shepherd would. But in this temporary world, in the meantime, Jesus has appointed temporary, what we could call under-shepherds. Under-shepherds, or elders, or pastors, you could say. And it's these elders, it's these pastors' job to care for the flock and point them to Christ. But I want to be clear. Listen, pastors are not replacing Jesus. That is not a pastor's job. Pastors are not standing in for Jesus while he's gone. That's not the job either. Pastors are working underneath Christ and pointing people upward to him. So just like any other organization, right? Just like any other business in the secular world needs good leadership to steer it to, to good health and good productivity. So a church needs good leadership to shepherd it towards Christ. That's the movement. The movement is to Him. The movement is closer and closer to Him. Not further away in random directions. Not to a person. Not to a leader. We're not drawing people to ourselves. We're pushing people to Christ. So the church needs a shepherd to point, to steer, to guide towards the true shepherd. So that's why. That's why we need pastors. That's why Jesus ordained this position in the church 2,000 years ago. So now the question becomes, who may serve as a pastor? Who could be a pastor? Now, when answering this question, it's very important to understand God's design. And when I say His design, I mean His first design and intention for humanity, which is rooted in the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You have to start there. You have to start at the beginning of time to understand why and who may serve even as a pastor. You're like, well, what is, 
what does the beginning of time have to do with this? Well, a few weeks ago, uh, I preached a two-part sermon on marriage. And uh, I talked a lot in those two sermons about God's design uh, for men and women. And instead of repeating everything again today and re-preaching that, uh, if you didn't hear that message, please go on our website or go and listen to our podcast and, uh, and you can hear uh, everything you know, that we talked about in terms of God's design for men and for women, uh, and specifically in a marriage. But here's the basics. I'll give you this. So God created, at the beginning of time, Adam and Eve, right? So he created man and woman equally. Equally, both men and women are created equally. Absolutely. In the image of God, both a man and a woman equally reflect reflect the image of God within them. And both, both men and women are of equal importance in the world, in the home, and in the church. But we also believe, we also believe that God created men and women to be different. Now there's the obvious facts of biology, right? Men and women are obviously different. But also, we believe, along with that, God has given different roles and responsibilities for men and women to play in a marriage. And it's a beautiful design because we believe that husbands and wives complement one another. We complement one another by fulfilling the roles that God has given us to play. So both genders are both looking to Christ equally to play their roles and responsibilities in the design, and ultimately following his example and his, his submission to God. So Jesus, right, he is equal with God the Father. He is absolutely equal with God the Father, yet he voluntarily and sacrificially submits to the Father's will. And so we believe wives follow and play that role and, and submit to Christ in that way. And then we also believe that husbands as Jesus leads the church, is the spiritual leader of the home. So we believe that those roles are actually beautiful when they come together and they complement one another. So we believe that Scripture is very clear that that same truth carries over into pastoral leadership in the church. But there's a big difference. There's a big difference. You see, while all Christian husbands are called to be spiritual leaders in their homes, not every man is called to be a spiritual leader in the church. Not every man is called to be a spiritual leader in the church. We believe the New Testament is very clear that only qualified men, only qualified men may serve as pastors or elders in the church. And that's a beautiful design that God's given us to complement. And only those pastors... Only those pastors carry any kind of spiritual authority over the congregation. I love what my former seminary professor, Tom Schreiner, said about this. He says, all Christians are called to ministry. All Christians, men and women alike, both. Guess what? If you're a believer, you're called to ministry <laughs> to some degree. Maybe not full-time vocational ministry and working at a church, but you're called if you are a believer, that's what you signed up for. You may not realize it or not, all right? But you signed up to be a faithful witness in this world for Christ, to witness to your neighbors and your, and your co-workers. You, you are a follower of Jesus, and so what do we do? We follow in his footsteps. So we're all called to ministry, and guess what? All of the spiritual gifts 
we see in Scripture are available to men and women alike. All the spiritual gifts are available to men and women alike. So the issue, it's not one of who has the gift. It's not an issue of gifting. The question is who may serve in the office of pastor in the design God has given us. And we believe the Scriptures are very clear. Only qualified men, which we will look at in more detail uh, in just a moment as to exactly what qualifies someone. The, moving on, though, to the next question. What are the responsibilities of the pastors? What are the responsibilities of the pastors? To minister to people at the golf course, right? I thought y'all would laugh at that. Okay, that was a joke. <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, I'm, I know most people normally have jokes about this, so I'd love to hear them. Uh, Peter gives us two, all right? Peter gives us two major responsibilities of pastors, all right? Look what he says in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So number one, he tells these elders, these pastors to shepherd the flock, all right? So in other words, what does that mean? Care for the souls, care for the souls of God's people by shepherding their spiritual formation. Shepherding their spiritual formation. You see, through other New Testament teachings, we see what all of that entails, right? So that includes uh, teaching and preaching the scriptures, right? That's a pastor's job. Uh, praying for the church, praying and visiting the sick, uh, praying for the sick, uh, protecting the church from false teaching. It's a huge responsibility of one of these elders or pastors. Discipling and equipping the church members to do the work of the ministry. It's our job to equip you, right? We're all called to ministry in some degree. So we're supposed to train the, uh, the flock to, to do ministry out in the world. Pastors are called to, to shepherd, right? These spiritual lives of the congregation in those ways. But secondly, he says, exercising oversight. Exercise oversight. In other words, pastors are called not only to give that pastoral shepherding uh, job, but also called to lead and manage the church, to set the vision and the direction of the church as an organization, but always using proper and sound theological and doctrinal judgment. Now, obviously, this is not a detailed job description here. That's not the point. But these are the two major categories of responsibility that Peter lists here for elders, pastors to remember. And these are huge responsibilities, right? I mean, these are huge responsibilities because one day, Hebrews tells us that every pastor will have to stand before God and give an account for his flock, right? So you guys help me out. <laughs> Make it not so hard, right, to give an account for you. No, but that's true. God tells us, pastors, you'll have to stand and answer for how faithful you were in leading your flock. So these things, these things can't be taken lightly, which brings us to the how, right? And when we say how, we mean the manner or the attitude in which pastors should carry out these responsibilities. That's what Peter addresses next. How should pastors carry out their responsibilities. So this is really a question of character, right? This is a question of attitude. Look what, look what he says in 2 and 3 again. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. But like, here's the detail, right? He says, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So Peter says, 
hey, pastors, listen, do your jobs willingly, not because you feel compelled or out of some sense of compulsion. You know, ministry is not, it's not always fun. It's not, it's not just fun and games. It's, it's hard work. It's dirty work in many ways. It's difficult. But pastors, Peter says, should be willing to serve in that way. Willing to serve. He says, be eager about it. Don't be in it for some kind of shameful game. The work is not about garnering personal uh, respect in the community or, or amongst your peers. It's not about making a name for yourself. The pastor should be eager to, to lead and serve for the right reasons. The pastor should, should eagerly serve and disciple for the sake of Christ and the flock. You see, the joy, the joy in this job is in the Lord. So if a pastor is not seeking the Lord, and if that's not his source of joy, well, the job will absolutely not be joyful. The joy is in the Lord and his work that he's given and people coming to know him and to grow in him. Peter says, thirdly, how should we carry out these responsibilities. He says, be examples. Right? Not, not domineering or, or abusing your authority over people or lording it over them, but being examples. Examples of what? Pastors follow the example of Christ. Think about that. Jesus was a leader, but how did he lead? Jesus led by serving, right? Jesus was what we call a servant leader. He led by serving, not, not domineering over others, but in humility. Christ humbled himself in just coming to earth. And he humbled himself all the way in obedience to the cross, willing to lay down his life for his sheep. So pastors are called to lead in the same way. Now we don't have time to read it, and you can read it on your own, but 1 Timothy chapter 3, so 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 give specific qualifications for being uh, an elder and a pastor. And that's another sermon for another day because that's a sermon in and of itself. But those are great passages to refer to when looking at who may actually be qualified, right, to serve. And then what's interesting, though, I will say this, what's interesting in these qualifications we see in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, it's really not about gifting. It, it, it's not about gifting. It's about, it, it's not about how talented the man is, except for needing the gift of teaching, right? He does have to possess the gift of teaching, it says. But all of those qualities listed in those passages are about character. It's about character. You know, that's the opposite of what most of the world would look for in a leader. These days, I think, uh, in most of our organizations and even in politics, what do we do? We're, we're looking for a leader who fits a certain mold. We want he or she to be a, a certain type of person and, and fit a certain mold in our minds. And, and we're, we're results-driven, right? So we want results, and, and we're willing to sacrifice character in many organizations today just so that we can get quick results. But as God told Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, as he was choosing David, a small shepherd boy, how about that, a shepherd, to lead his people, God said, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And for those pastors whose hearts are in the right place, look at what Peter says in verse 4. Look at this. 
He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, the chief shepherd will reward his faithful under-shepherds. So it's all worth it in the end. All the struggles and all the turmoil and all the pain and the heartache, the highs and the lows of ministry are all worth it in the end. And this had to be so encouraging for these first century pastors to hear. Can you just imagine the context they were in? Man, we have it easy today. But the context that these first century pastors were in, as they were risking their lives, truly, to gather and meet in the name of Jesus, when they hear Peter say to them, keep on going, it's worth it in the end because the chief shepherd will give you an unfading crown of glory. Can you imagine how encouraged they were? You know, it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to just kind of block out of our minds the pains and the troubles that many Christian pastors are facing around the world in different countries where it's illegal to preach the gospel. There are places in this world today there are Christians gathered today on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, in homes and basements hiding. Hiding because they know if they met in public, they would probably be killed or arrested. So here in America, it's easy because here we are with a stage and lights and screens and it's great. But we can't forget our brothers who are fighting, our sisters around this world who are serving in the name of Christ our brothers and sisters, our people, our sheep, our fellow sheep, our flock, we can't forget that they are working towards that unfading crown of glory. And so Peter, with that in mind, he gives a concluding statement about all of this. And notice that this aspect of humility, it's not just for, for the pastors. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, likewise, you who are younger... And that could refer to age or that could refer to uh, someone who has just started their Christian life, right? A young Christian. Uh, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, right? So the whole church, everybody, clothe yourselves with what? Humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So basically, Peter's saying, hey, church, man, let, let's all just be humble to one another. Let's be humble to one another. Let's submit to that pastoral leadership, but let's do so as we are humble and loving one another. Everyone be humble about it, he says. Show grace to one another because we're a family. We're a flock. Because ultimately, what are we all supposed to do? We're all me, you, everybody, we're all following the same example. We're all following the chief shepherd. As we read in John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who humbled himself and sacrificed his life for us, for his sheep. You know, it's amazing to think that the God of all creation would refer to himself that way. A shepherd's job is nasty and smelly. They basically have to become like one of the sheep in order to truly protect them 24-7. And you know that that's exactly what our shepherd did? 
He became one of us. The scriptures tell us that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. You see, every single person who's ever lived has walked their own course in this world. They've lived their own life doing things the way they want, not submitting ultimately to their creator and God. I'm guilty of that. You're guilty of that. We all are. All of us are like ignorant sheep who have gone astray. But there is a good shepherd who laid down his rights and laid down his privileges in, in, in heaven to become one of the sheep. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He became a sheep. He became one of us. One of us, smelly, dirty creatures with smelly, dirty hearts full of sin. Our shepherd loved us so that he became one of us and sacrificed his own life so that we could live. Boy, that's a good shepherd. That he would live the life we should have lived. That he would die the death we should have died for our own sin. And that he would raise from the grave. So that when we come out of those waters, <laughs> we are united with him. And our hearts have been transformed and changed by his goodness and his grace. And so our whole lives, as difficult as they may be in this world, especially as Christians living in a non-Christian world with family members who don't know the Lord, with coworkers who talk bad about Christ and bad about you for believing, and all those ups and downs and all the sufferings of life, what you need to know today is that there is a good and chief shepherd who is using his rod and his staff to bring you in when you wander, to keep you on course when you stray, to steer you in the right direction. Man, isn't it comforting to know that the God of all creation is attentive to your life? That He's walking with you and leading you every step of the way through those dark valleys. In the good times and the bad, He is shepherding your heart. He is caring for your soul. He is loving and leading and continues to serve you because He loves you so. If you're here today and you've never given your life truly to following the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, the God-man who became a sheep, who became the sacrificial lamb for us, I invite you to give your life to Him. There's nothing you've done there's nothing you've ever said. There's no thought you've ever had. There's no action you've ever done that can keep you from his grace. The shepherd is waiting to bring you into the flock. Don't put that off another second. Enter into the flock by his grace and he will love you forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for being our good and faithful shepherd. 
Lord, like sheep, we have all gone astray. But Lord, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And Lord, just knowing that you love us so much like this, that when we are ignorant and when we do silly things, and when we make huge mistakes and we fail and we fail again, that you do not give up on us, that you leave the 99 behind and you go after the one. Lord, we all have been the one. And we thank you for loving us in this way, for shepherding our hearts, for comforting us and walking with us through our pains and our sufferings. Lord, your grace is comforting. Your salvation is everlasting. Your love is so great. So Jesus, we look to you in this church. We look to you to shepherd us. We look to you to be our chief and ultimate shepherd who loves us so. So Lord, let us be faithful sheep. Let us follow your voice. Let us know it. Lord, let us obey it. We thank you for this great grace that you give us every day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.